Hello and welcome to episode 145 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malikian and I am joined by James Rundle. Hello. So today we are going to discuss a few news stories that revolve around crypto and blockchain and cloud platforms. Because this wheel never stops turning, right? It just always goes. And then we're going to look at AI in the cybersecurity field. And then we all know that you come to the Waters Technology Podcast to hear about politics. So at the end, we'll probably talk a little bit about the elections last night, maybe a little bit about what it means for Wall Street going forward. Yeah. but let's start with the news, the stuff that you actually care about, and then you can just turn us off later on. Um, wait, start with the CSDs? Let's see that. Yeah. Okay. That's, as I probably will call it CDS a few times, but CSDs, <laughs> Central Securities Depositories, um, they are apparently looking or exploring how their roles are translatable to the crypto asset infrastructure, kind of bringing this traditional technology into this emerging field. James, you know, what was the takeaway here? Yeah, um, so I guess from the beginning, this is one of the things that um, everyone has said about the crypto market, that they want to get involved, but it lacks kind of institutional-grade infrastructure, whether that's custody services, whether it's prime brokerage, or um, adequate sort of settlement agents, which CSDs are, essentially. Um, I think this is one of the first real kind of signs that serious institutions like Euroclear, for instance, like Clearstream, um, mm-hmm. you know, these big international CSDs who handle the bulk of um, of equity settlement in Europe and elsewhere, um, are thinking about actually coming and getting involved in this market. Um, probably, I mean, Wei Shen did the story at Cybos, um, and she spoke to the guy there. You know, it's all reported in the story, but uh, Walter Verbeke. Walter Verbeke, yes, uh, Verbeke or Verbeke. Um, Global head of business model and innovation at Europe. That's the man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, Walter, <laughs> if you're listening, but um, yeah, I think they've got a few things to consider. There, obviously, um, when you're trading equities, being the depository for share certificates, it used to be very simple. You had a vault when someone bought share, you picked it up out of one box and put it in the other. Now it's been dematerialized, um, largely in Europe for, for many years now, and largely in the US ever since Hurricane Sandy when uh, water breached the DTCC vault um, back in 2012. With Bitcoin, it's a little bit different. You know, you have to get involved with sort of cold storage of wallets, um, you know, cryptographic keys that you use to access them. The ways and means of moving Bitcoin between those kind of wallets are different as well. So, I mean, I think there is definitely a way to do it, and it's probably a, a decent sign for the market that these guys are thinking about getting involved, but uh, a long way to go. What, why is it then that, because like I said, it, it does seem like a logical area for the, for these guys to get involved. Why why is it that, um, as Wei Shen says, that you know uh, existing custodian CSDs and equities and some of the other markets, that, that they have, few have been keen to publicly speak about um, how their fa- firms plan to engage in this space? What's kind of the... The, 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 I think the hold it's just, up. I think it's the reputation, to be honest, of the crypto markets. That's why everyone's hesitant to talk yeah. about it. You know, you had news reports the other week saying that Goldman is sort of quietly offering um, Bitcoin's derivatives contracts to its uh, to select customers, mm-hmm. uh, its prime customers. Um, and But there's still a lot of regulatory uncertainty around it. You know, you have reports of hacks all the time. If you announce this, that you're doing this, you become a very big target for a lot of people. Um, and you have to be sure your infrastructure is obviously up to snuff to handle that. If you've been kind of isolated the world of capital markets for a while. Obviously, you have cybersecurity um, programs in place, but maybe they're not up to the level of, shall we say, scrutiny um, and um, 
invasion that they might withstand when people sort of get wind of the fact that you have digital assets being stored there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and also you know there's a great deal of regulatory uncertainty around it. For instance, um, the UK task force is looking at banning Bitcoin derivatives right now. Um, there's still a very great amount of uncertainty in the US around how these things are treated. Are they securities? Are they not securities? When does it become a security? When does it become a commodity? How does it transmogrify between them at different points depending on what, how it's... Transmogrify? Sort of, yeah, exactly. Cool word. I learned that word from Calvin and Hobbes. Did you ever read that? Uh, <laughs> the little comic strip as a kid? He had this, yeah. this little box called the transmogrifier I used to go into. It was one of my first big words I knew when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so um, essentially, I think these guys have been a bit uh, a bit hesitant, maybe, to engage publicly, and also because I think a lot of people are waiting to see what happens with the asset class. Yeah. Like, was it just an initial flurry back in um, twenty seventeen when it had that amazing bull run um, up towards the end of the year when they launched the futures? Is that sticking around since then? And I guess the answer is yes. I mean, there's still very thin trading volumes on Bitcoin futures compared to other asset classes, but um, it's steady. And I think SIBO um, came out yesterday with something saying there's been record low volatility, which um, is a positive in this asset class, I guess, whereas mm-hmm. in others it's not so much. Yeah, yeah I guess that, you know, it's in going on to the year and then really into 2019, you know, and that's when you know, a lot of people are speculating that, you know, SEC will start really kind of addressing the Bitcoin ETF stuff, stuff like yeah. that. Maybe that's like when some of these 19 will kind of be the year of, all right, the regulators are really going to have to start to uh, – let us know where the boundaries are here and where, or, you know, what what's needed going forward, maybe. I mean, and again, like, you know, you can understand that perspective. I think the, the American authorities have actually been very sensible, particularly the SEC, not so much the CFTC, in how they've handled this. The SEC is, um, we're not going to just approve this stuff because you want it immediately, guys. We're going to wait and see how it pans out and sort yeah. of, you know, um, how various other uh, cryptocurrencies pan out. Ethereum is releasing its 2.0 version, um, for instance, which is coming out soon, which includes a thing called sharding, which... Um, Potentially solves a lot of the uh, the problem with capacity of it, yeah, um, and everything else. And it's kind of it's moving from a proof of work concept into production and, and becomes enterprise enterprise grade. Sorry, um, so I think they've been very sensible about it, um, especially now they've also sort of circumspectively walked back some of William Hinman's comments when he said earlier in the year that you know. Some certain things aren't going to be classified as a security. They put out a press release a few months later saying, hey, look, sometimes our guys talk at conferences and sometimes we issue staff advisories. That doesn't mean it's policy, guys. Um, let me just explain financial regulation to you idiots. Yeah. You've just got into this whole capital markets business, right? Sure. Um, but, yeah, I think next year is the year we're going to see it. Um, I think they're going to decline the ETF applications again. Yeah. Um, that's what I've been hearing, anyway, from my contacts. Um, and then you'll see another dip in value of cryptocurrency and this whole merry-go-round to keep on going for a few more years until somebody brings in something people actually want and has some utility. Okay. And then one of the other big uh, news stories come out um, for us, uh, the DTCC, uh, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, is moving into the testing phase with its trade information warehouse project, TIW, which is going to be built using a distributed ledger. Um, they're going to begin testing um, with 15 participant banks as well as MarketServe. We're going to talk a little bit about MarketServe's play in this in just a second, but the, yep. the, they're a key uh, piece of this as well. And this is more or less in line with what we reported back in September, right? Yes. So, yeah. yeah, and yeah, so there haven't been any other, you know, they said later on this fall, 
and then into 2019. Originally, it was, February was kind of the time frame, but really it was the first half of the year is what, they, what they've been staying. They've yeah. been sticking to that. Um, so the getting into the testing is good. We'll see how it goes with the 15 mark participants. The testing is also where a lot of the delays end up popping up um, that we've yeah. seen as we've gone through this uh, process, just in other in other iterations of blockchain deployments. And to be fair to the DTCC, every time I've spoken to them about this, they've just said, look, we don't want to rush it. Right? Yeah. You know, this is a massive market. The TOW handles 98% of, um, of uh, lifecycle events in the credit derivatives market. Yeah. Which obviously isn't as big as it used to be pre-crisis, but it's still a pretty substantial asset class. Yeah. Um, with you know potentially huge problems if it goes down. So I imagine the CFTC is probably watching it very closely. I imagine it probably has people in the room to be honest with you um, while this is going on. And MarketServe, so through its TradeServe platform, um, is going to play play a, a major piece of this. So they also have to kind of wait if TradeServe if MarketServe falls behind a yeah. little bit then that will hold things up as well. So it's not all just on them. And then also you have the likes of IBM is as a consultant, Axoni uh, building the platform, and then uh, R3 uh, coming in. So you have a lot of different moving pieces here. Plus the 15 banks they want to coordinate with and everyone else. And exactly. The second testing phase they're doing with an enhanced group, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, look, it, it's probably more forward progress than this project has had in a long time, um, like as in concrete steps forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was talking with Tony Freeman about it at Cybos in Toronto in 2017, it still seemed very woolly and very much up in the air. Now it seems that they're ready to actually sort of, you know, right, okay, this is done now. This yeah. is, let's, let's go and just do this. Um, questions is you, whether you really, really need it to be a DLT platform. I mean, you know, that's the age old thing, isn't it, right? Why do you need this? Yeah. Like, sort of, why does it have to be replatformed as a blockchain thing? Yeah. Um, but hey, look, they're going to do it. I can see the benefits of it. Um, I don't see necessarily what couldn't be done with existing technology, but more power to you guys. Yeah. If you're willing to pay for it, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if the banks end up, you know, liking this, and hopefully, uh, well, again, I mean, we'll yeah, see so, it. Well, which I mean, if the banks are willing to pay for this, yeah, ultimately exactly. they're the ones who are going to pay for it, right? So. Um, and so the other piece of that. So today, uh, market serve uh, our IHS market officially uh, announced, unveiled. Um, it's a new trade serve platform, mm-hmm. um, which was launched um, at the beginning of September. Kind of weird, right? Because they had the website up for like a couple of months already, and it's mentioned. Well, you know, that's how press releases work. Press a lot release. of times, yeah, you know, yeah. that's you know, they they need to get like sign offs and stuff like that. So it's just more. All right, we are now officially we're going here. It's you know, you had to kind of let it go live probably a little bit, make sure that no big problems sprouted up or anything like that. We've spoken. Um, a fair amount about uh, the platform, but you know, I don't know. Is there anything that you think that we should be keeping an eye out for? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, with the, with the TIW news today, which probably helps as well, I'd imagine, um, for reasons we've just discussed. I think just keeping a look in the time frame. So it was going to be NDFs first, which they've announced today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then it's uh, options next year. Um, is that right? And then credit as well, following when that happens. So so on September 10th, they went live, uh, uh, I believe it's in the realm of um, 32 firms are live and Uh, 1.1 million NDFs have cleared via the service this year. Um, Volumes are steadily increasing. Um, Next step is going to be moving uh, the regulatory reporting engines, which are currently spread across uh, three platforms, uh, to the TradeServe cloud stack. Um, So those are kind of going to be some of the big ones. Uh, 
let's see here. We talk, so yeah, I think it's um, yeah. So yeah, so next year is going to be a lot later this year, and then well, into, and beginning part of 2019 yeah. are going to be the big uh, kind of rollouts of the rest of the platform. I think once they get credit on board, you'll start to see the shape of what this is like for the future yeah. and kind of operation. You know, um, and obviously this is going to provide the. As we said before, the foundational kind of layer for a lot of uh, market service technology moving forward. Market serve, of course, now staying with IHS Market after trying to be sold this year. So, yeah. I think a bit more stability in kind of what they're doing is probably good for them. Um, you know, being acquired is always a disruptive events, and you don't sure. want that while you're launching this at the same time. Yeah. So it leaves them to kind of really focus and then come getting this right. And yeah, they got some good people there. Like Brad Levy knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, all the team there. It should be, uh, yeah, I think, an interesting yeah. thing to watch. Yeah. yeah. All right, and then I think then as far as features that we put up uh, this week, yep. uh, the one that we kind of wanted to hit on the most, I think, is how both um, financial institutions and hackers and you know uh, bank robbers, uh, to yeah, use exactly. a, a more fun term, yep, yeah. uh, are using AI uh, to both attack and defend. Yep, um, mainly because it's not about crypto um so we yeah. can talk about something else which yeah is great. exactly you know, exactly yeah, guys. Yeah. yeah um what do you think uh so one of the cool takeaways from it that i thought um just uh was so this was by amelia david a uh, mm. reporter here in the u.s um she spoke with mark morrison the chief security officer of the options clearing corp the uh, occ and they were so he said that they're using AI for their defenses uh, in three ways. So they use it to gather and analyze varying inputs of cyber intelligence that they get from commercial and government sources. Um, they use it to come up with algorithms to input whatever is critical to uh, their processes and data. And they use it to be more predictive in where they think uh, adversaries will attack them based on current uh, tactics. Um, to kind of direct them so that they can be a bit more proactive because it's kind of like on steroid testing, right? You're always behind the cheaters. Yeah. You're always behind the criminals. So, you know, they're trying to use AI and specifically deep learning to be a little bit more proactive uh, in this in this realm. Yeah. Um, so that was, that, that was an interesting takeaway, I thought. I thought what was interesting, I think, just kind of the way she laid it out, talking about kind of what the future state will be as well. So if you recall the uh, the good old days of the flash crash back in 2012 and all this kind of hubbub about algorithmic trading and all the rest of it, what ended up being an actual situation in the market was kind of a weird to-and-fro battle between algorithms, right? So you'd have algorithms that would ping a market to see what the volume was and whether they could aggress that volume or move it somewhere else. They had algorithms that would sort of pick up on that and learn that that was an algorithm and then try and sort of second guess that algorithm's behavior so they can undercut it or front run it or what have you. Um, And that sort of almost seems like it's the future of sort of cybersecurity in a way. So you have kind of uh, AI-powered algorithms going in, trying to probe defenses, trying to find ways in, that kind of thing. Defensive algorithms, like seeing that come in and trying to sort of build, erect a kind of wall in front of that point of attack and then go to the next one. Um, It's kind of like a, a virtual form of a white hat, you know, kind of hacker. Exactly, yeah, this is it. And I think that's just really interesting just in terms of kind of it becomes uh, a very difficult problem for the bank because it means that defense isn't static, right? Mm-hmm. So you've looked at cybersecurity in the past kind of as a fortress. So you build up the walls, whether that's um, through authentication to access systems, whether it's through firewalls, whether it's through kind of um, 
more physical stuff like uh, physical security in buildings and uh, background checking employees and monitoring them, making sure they're not being coerced or yeah. subverted. Uh, now it becomes a thing where it's almost like a moving uh, game the whole time where you've got to kind of, you know, it's not trench warfare of World War One. it's the kind of fast-paced action of World War Two now where you've got to kind of defend and attack at various points and keep it going. It becomes a, a very different discipline, I think, um, and whether the financial services industry is ready for that is another story, especially as we move into an era where, uh, when it comes to warfare between nations, for instance, the primary battleground is conducted first on a digital basis rather yeah. than a physical one. So well, and I think that, yeah, you know, and it's so the OCC is using a third uh, party company uh, for it. Um, it sounds like RBC might also be, uh, so uh, she also spoke with uh, Alexander Pei, I think, Pei, yeah. um, head of innovation at RBC. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is certainly an area where having specialist security firms is probably the way to go rather than yeah. trying to always stay up. You know, you, as a bank, as an asset manager, as a regulator, you don't want to have to be that involved in the yeah. in, in this attack, counterattack. Although you know, there is of. an argument saying you don't want a third party having access to this. Also, if, you are, point, if you're but... a JP Morgan or a city and you have a large retail operation as well, for mm-hmm. instance, which is unrelated to the markets business, um, but you still have to have someone going across that. Then I think you have to have an internal team to do it. But if you're a, um, you know, if you're a second tier landers bank, well, I guess is it? Do you think it's an internal team that? So obviously, you need to have an internal team. So your CISO department is certainly going to be that. Do you think though that the technology that's being built that most of that would be third party driven? Yeah, uh, I mean, and I think Mia touches on that as well, where she says that you know, we, the banks are developing AI for various purposes. It would probably be better to take something already built or already researched and developed by a third party and then maybe more fit for your own needs, I think, inside. Yeah. Or have a consultant from that vendor come in and say, okay, well, you need it for this, so let's change to this and do a big custom build for you. Um, yeah, but I think it's just, you know, we talked about how in the past, um, you know, technology was seen as a very distinct part of the bank and cybersecurity was seen as a very distinct part of the bank and now both of them become the business. In the same way, I think having this kind of technical capacity on hand is just going to become a cost of doing business. If mm-hmm. you want to operate and you want to keep your clients' assets safe, which is core to your function as a bank and the trust people have in you, you're going to have to spend the money on it, unfortunately, whether that's hiring white hats, whether that's hiring security firms to come in and have dedicated teams, or whether it's um, developing that talent in-house. It's just something you're going to have to do in the future as the world becomes more and more digitized as quantum computing comes in and everything else. Yeah. Well, I think that, and this is where it's going to be interesting, because as you, as you talk about you know, the, the companies that we cover on the retail side, you know, the government is going to have to play uh, a part in this, yeah. um, in the helping um, and sharing of information. Um, and there was an article uh, in Wired magazine that was, you know, really, really interesting. I thought uh, it was called uh, "The AI Cold War That Threatens Us All," mm. um, and written by uh, Nick Thompson and Ian Bremmer. And it was a fascinating look at, you know, how this. Right now, we are kind of entering into this new Cold War with China around AI development, and you know, Barack Obama lid, originally laid down a gauntlet to kind of be say that AI is going to be front and center of our development in the future. Um, and then China said, all right, we got to start specializing this. And they were able to basically take their, whereas that we can't exactly go to Google and Facebook and force them to do some things. 
Maybe it's a little bit different in... Uh... <laughs> they can force Ali Baba to do things yeah. and uh, Tencent and that kind of thing. And also, the, the really interesting point was that a lot of those engineers are being trained in America and then going back home and applying those skills they learn here. Yeah. Sort of thing. But also, it's yeah, I mean, you're right. It's the kind of disparity in approach, right? You know, the Chinese saw Obama's statement and thought it as a declaration of U.S. policy for the next 25 years um, without kind of understanding that governments change and people put less of priority on things and that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, and then the way China does is taking it whole hog and just gone straight forward. And yeah. it's quite scary. I mean, like, you know, they talk about kind of the, uh, how they're using AI for like a social credit score and how they're becoming like the first AI-enabled um, dictatorship, really, I guess, yeah. or sort of autocracy, right, yeah. in, uh, in the world. And I think that's, a, and how that's kind of enabling other um, uh, similar autocratic regimes to kind of hasten the dissolution of the, the Western liberal order as the kind of mm-hmm. predominant form of politics in the world. It's really fascinating article, actually. And the, the, there, there's a reason why this is all really going to come to a head. And so I'm taking this uh, from the article itself. Uh, so this is was in Wired. Um, so they say, remember how it felt like magic to be able to browse real web pages on the second generation iPhone? That was 3G, the mobile standard that became widespread in mid-2000s. Modern 4G networks are several times faster. 5G will be vastly faster still, and when we can do things faster, we can do them more, which means more data piles up. Um, it's already hard for most people to comprehend, much less control, all the information collected about them, and the leverage that accrues to data aggregators will just increase as we move forward in the era of AI. And this is really, you know, we, we keep on banging on about privacy and stuff like that, but it's you know, this is, you know, it seems like the Trump administration after kind of, you know, really just saying, no, nah, no, it's not that big of a deal. Okay, an old man's approach to technology kind of thing. You know, right? Mad Dog Mattis was like, nope, you are going to care about this 100%. We're already seeing this on the battlefield. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, was, so, you know. um, so hopefully there wasn't too much of a, of an a, of a kind of a homegrown AI winter there. Um, hopefully we didn't lose too much ground. You hope, but you know, I say we, U.S. Of course. Um, well, I don't US. think I don't think the Pentagon ever stopped. Yeah, <laughs> regardless exactly. of what I said, they're in charge um, of their budget, right? I mean, yeah. It's, um, yeah. And I think just coming back to the point about sort of government assistance, one of my favorite anecdotes was from a couple of years ago when I was at TSAM, and I was sat waiting for a panel to start, and I was sat behind a guy from um, used to be at the CFTC and the guy who was at the Department of Justice. And they were just talking about kind of industry's responses to cybersecurity. And they were saying, you know what, every time banks come into us and they want us to solve it for them, mm-hmm. and we can't do that. Yeah. Like, you know, at the end of the day, they just said, you know, when it comes to CHU, the old acronym of criminals, hackers, espionage, or warfare, we can maybe help them with, like, the first three. Like, we can help with organized crime. We can help with hacktivists. We can help with uh, corporate espionage to an extent. Ain't nothing we can do if North Korea wants to break in. That's just going to happen, like, yeah. unfortunately. And... Uh, you know, they were just talking amongst themselves. I don't think they realised I was there. I was just sort of quietly making notes behind them, um, and they were just saying, "Yeah, you know, like institutions Cooper. have to take responsibility for themselves." Yeah, you know, this is it. So, and that's the thing. The lesson that banks need to take away from this is the way this is now changing, uh, illustrated by the fact that China, as we just said, is now putting such a huge amount of money into this. North Korea is already a specialist cyber warfare, yeah. uh, combatant state. Um, you know, any other rogue nation out there or someone with an axe to grind against the US or, or the UK has the ability to recruit and train people to do that through the internet. Mm. Um, and the primary target is going to be banks, it's going to be stock exchanges, it's going to be clearing houses. Any smart person who looks at it think, right, what's the first step to crippling a nation is take down their market infrastructure. Yep. 
you know. So, so. And uh, it's going to be one of the, the fascinating um, things. And so, obviously, as it relates, definitely check out uh, Mia's story. It's, it's very interesting, uh, very good inside look as to how AI is being used both for attacking and defending. Sure. Um, and so, speaking of politics, um, yes. so we're speaking here on Wednesday, the day after uh, the uh, elections here in the United States. Yes, it was. Um, um, how late did you start watching it? It was up to about one thirty, I would say. Is, uh, uh, I fell asleep at half eleven on the sofa. When yeah. it was, I think it was fairly clear yeah, what yeah. happened at that point. Um, not so much a blue wave as a blue rinse, maybe. It's, you know, it, it, well, it's funny. You know, you had some certainly in the house. It's a wave. I mean, what was it? Twenty six seats right now. I yeah, think it house, is not as much for win as people are making out, though. I think, like you know, the Democrats had to win twenty three seats at the beginning of the night, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they ended up winning twenty six. Yeah, mm-hmm. as you say, so it's only three above what their target was. You know, it's not like they had a substantial majority now within the House. Yeah. It's a very slim one. But 26 um, seats is a lot of... That's a lot of seats in one midterm. You know, when you, com- yeah. when you compare it to other midterm elections, that's certainly a lot. But the, the, the thing I've... Both sides certainly had reason to cheer because, you know, the Republicans gaining two seats in the Senate, a little bit of a surprise there. I think Democrats, even if they weren't going to win the Senate, I think they were either hoping to keep it as it was or maybe you know, just uh, make it a hair closer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And from a judicial standpoint, it's now going to be a conveyor belt of, you know, it already was, but yeah. it's really going to become a conveyor belt of uh, conservative judges that are going to be appointed and just... Well, that was uh, Lindsey Graham's tweet, wasn't it? He said the uh, conservative judicial training is going to keep on rolling now. So, yeah. I and mean, that's very, very true. Yes. Yeah. You know, and especially because now they're embittered over the Kavanaugh uh, nomination as well. They're going to make mm-hmm. sure they keep pressing that home. Um, and now there's really not... It's going to be tough to, you know, com- you need a lot more people on the left yeah. that, uh, side of the aisle that are going to be willing to side, you know... To caucus on the... Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, or, I'm sorry, on the right, that we need to pull over to the left. Exactly. And, and this is the second point, I think, which is why it's good for Trump, is that... Um, there was definitely a Trump effect, I think, in, in, in that to a certain extent. Um, and then the people who are left in Congress after losing their seats tend to be people who were, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, endorsed by Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, as yeah, a result, idiot the, king in uh, Iowa yeah, is still around. A couple of other maniacs as well who are down there. Um, luckily not that Greg GM40 guy who chokeslammed reporters. So is he official, did he officially lose? I didn't I think, see that. I think he officially lost. Okay. I'm not gonna, don't quote me on that. But... Um, yeah, we'll just say it live into a microphone. Just say it live, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, a couple of big games in New York as well, uh, definitely, and that kind of thing. Mm. For you know, But what that means is that um, the Congressional Republican Party is now very much a Trump Congressional Republican Party, and they look a lot more united and focused than the Democrats do. They're all very much behind Trump's message now. A lot of the guys who did oppose him, the, the old guard, um, Bob Corker, uh, John McCain, are now sort of dead or, or retired. Um, the guys that are left tend to be sort of ardent sort of Trump enthusiasts yeah. and you know you had Carl Rove on Fox News last night talking about how now it's the party of Trump and that kind of thing and yeah. uh, he just looks he just looks evil Carl Rove yeah, no, he's just yeah. that kind of you can imagine with a volcano <laughs> that's all with a cat um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, evil genius gotta evil give genius. it to him man <laughs> this, um, so yeah I mean you know the Democrats have a you know definitely a good showing 26 seats in the house Losing those two seats in the Senate, man, that's going to hurt. Like, well, that's from, a yeah. terrible, terrible loss. Like we, like we said, you know, once Trump won, it changed the Supreme Court. It changed the yeah. courts in this country were poised to go very left. So whether this isn't a 
I'm not saying it's a negative thing. I'm not saying it's good, a bad thing. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that that's what happened here. Well, I think it's is, part of the problem, the politicization of the judiciary. But, you know, that's a separate yeah. argument itself. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Claire McCaskill losing was a huge blow to mm-hmm. them. I think she was a sort of seasoned political campaigner. I think so. also, you know, just the... So the governorships swung a little bit to the left. Yeah, they did well in, but, the, in the gubernatorial race. But the thing is that in the swing states, they did, they lost those gubernatorial t- So a lot of the swing state... Um, statewide races yeah. they lost. And, oh, one thing I just want to say. Do not ever come up to me and talk about the popular vote in this instance. Here. Like, <laughs> you, you keep on having people, like, tracking the popular vote. There were more Democrats that voted uh, than... There, there were more votes gained for Democrats and Republicans. You see, we need... Listen, you want to say about the presidency, okay, fine. This is a made-up thing to create stupid-ass stories. So yeah. don't ever tweet. Don't ever say about the popular vote. Well, and also the house is based on population. <laughs> so I mean, like, you know, it's, a, it's a popular vote in that it's, it's, in that district or in that state. That's all it is. Don't yeah. give me this national popular vote stupidity. No, you nuts. sound like a moron. If you want to talk about that kind of thing, you can talk about how close the races were, and that's a discussion that is important. Right. I think to have, you know. Do I think Beto O'Rourke is loved by the people of Texas to the extent that he got 48% of the vote? No, I think, you know, Ted Cruz is unpopular even within his own party. And, and that's I think that if you flood so, enough money in, because yeah. all that money was coming from out of state. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was Florida a lot, and Texas, yeah. a lot of money went into those races. And I think that there are a lot of people that donated a lot of money that are going to be like, wait a minute, maybe we should have put that toward other Senate races that we could have won or that we're going to be... What were the odds of us win? We, this guy was cool and... Yeah, consolidate your power base, guys. You yeah. Know, so maybe chip away at the Red Wall a bit in the West. You yeah. Know, sort of, you know, what you want to do. Or put some more money into Arizona, which, uh, you know, flicker between blue and red all night until it's sort of settled on a very pale red, I think, yeah. at the end. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think... What, and also, you're right, the governor's races, it really helps Trump, I think, if he decides to run again in a couple of years' time. For, well, for the election in a couple of years' time. Um, you know, now he's got Florida, he's got the governor, Republican, mm-hmm. Trump ally. He's got Ohio, um, you yep. know, Iowa. Like, yep. All these are swing states that he now has in his pocket and yep. typically good ones I to start. Pennsylvania, on. too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Pennsylvania so. for the mayor, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yes, I can't remember. Yeah. I should know, yeah. considering I used to live there. Um, <laughs> not for the mayor, sorry, for the governor. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's what I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's, well, same with Massachusetts, Connecticut, New England. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing as well. It's... Uh, those states all have, I think, um, Republican governors, but Democratic. Yeah, I mean, those are yeah, those Democratic yeah. states, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's just one of those weird things where sometimes... Of Vermont as well, which I'm yeah. always amazed as voted for Bernie Sanders all these years, considering how red Vermont really is. Yeah, like, exactly. you know, they're all Whenever gun, you go there, yeah. Gun-carrying, yeah. God-fearing farmers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, and that's another thing as well, which I, like, you know, I was watching it with my wife last night, and regular listeners will know that... We're not exactly on the same end of the political spectrum. Uh, and she kept sort of going, look at all that red. Look at all that red in Florida. And I kept saying, like, yeah, okay, fine. Look at all that red. She's about it's just in the cities that people vote Democrat. And I was like, yeah. Because if you look at all that red along the like the panhandle in the north and stuff, that's like 0.1% of the population in the state, yeah. man. It looks impressive on a map. Yeah. And if you look at the uh, the house map at the end of it, big swathes of red all over the country. Yeah. No one lives there, man. It's like, it just looks impressive from a land mass perspective. I mean, I'll, I'll say, like, because... Yeah, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a conservative, and I just want these idiots that are just screwing up the Republican Party out is all that I want. So King getting in there again, that was just disappointing. Gene Forte, hopefully, is out there. Um, but I think that I always try and say that, like, the U.S., we have our ups, we have our downs. But we never swing too wildly right or left. Now, we are wildly swinging, you know, just at the air on both sides of the aisle here. But, you know... 
this it's not like after two years of Trump he gained you know a ton of seats in the House. It's not like it's now a super majority in the Senate. You know they lost government. Democrats had a say. They they you know that yeah. there was. I'll be interested to see what the total turnout was, and I'll be interested to see what the um oh, what the graphics. what the millennial uh mm. what the turnout was for them. Um, yeah, I think so as well because that's. I mean, it's always universally poor, right? And uh, although millennials now are getting older, I guess, and maybe it is. Because um, I remember this is just one. So New York Magazine went and they interviewed. I think it was like twelve or thirteen people, the kids, you know, not kids, uh, like you know, people underneath like forty years old, about why they aren't voting, and this just had me crying laughing. <laughs> this just literally had me crying laughing. Kid goes. I have ADHD, and it makes it hard for me to do certain tasks where the payoff is far off in the future or abstract. I don't find it intrinsically motivational. The amount of work logically isn't that much. Fill out a form, mail it, go to a specific place on a specific day. But those kind of tasks can be hard for me to do if I'm not enthusiastic about it. That's kind of a problem with social attitudes around, you know, it's your civic duty to vote. I once told a co-worker I didn't vote, and she said, that's really irresponsible in in this judgmental voice. You can build a policy around calling people irresponsible, but you really need to make people enthusiastic, engaged. Like you, this is why like we deserve Trump. Like right there, that's, that's it in yeah. a nutshell. <laughs> so I hope that I'll be, I'll be hard. I, I think that it made me happy with the the process. Listen, the process worked. Even though some idiots still get into the House, even though some idiots still get in the Senate, yeah. by and large, the process allowed us to swing a little bit back to the left. And then in 2020, we'll have a new statement. And if, you know, if we're still doing well as a country and we have an idiot as a president, guess what? We're probably going to have four more years. But right now, unemployment's so low, things aren't going so bad for a lot of people in this no, country. No, people, this is actually, yeah. Um, and I think uh, one of the, this is actually a point on Fox last night. Um, I was flicking between CNN and Fox, depending on who won the battle for remote control last night. I was watching between, BBC uh, America most of the was, well, I was okay. going, <laughs> At the start, I was being very responsible. I was watching a few minutes of CNN and then going to yeah. NBC and then going to BBC and then yeah. going to Fox and yeah. then eventually it just became like, yeah. who can hit the last I watched when Jake Tapper was on CNN and then everything else. Yeah, yeah Wolf was, Bliss was yeah. incredibly irritating yeah. last night. This was uh, their chief political correspondent who couldn't yeah. speak. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> there was a point in all this. Um, yes. <laughs> um, no, no, it's gone. It's just entirely gone. Impact is going to have on Wall Street. Um, so I guess one of the immediate impacts, obviously, with we'll cut out that long, long pause in the uh, middle. We'll make that sound a lot better. Don't worry. Post production will be fine. It's going to come to me as soon as we stop talking. James' head is actually sweating up a little bit here. That was funny. <laughs> Go on. Um, so immediate impact, I guess, uh, with the Democrats taking the House is that Joe Penn Sarling is no longer in charge of the House uh, Financial Services Committee. Mm-hmm. That goes to Maxine Waters, uh, who's a Democrat. Um, Go ahead, save us all. Well, <laughs> I mean, God save us all from Joe Penn Sarling, quite frankly, who was extolling the virtues of payday lenders and mm-hmm. talking about how banks don't need regulation. Um, so hopefully we have a more balanced perspective. Um, that's what I was going to say. So um, this came up on Fox News. Um I think one of the interesting things about this election was that it actually was a return to normality in the political process to, in a certain degree, like, you know, mm-hmm. 2016, 
was a very, very strange uh, year where nothing conformed to the norm in a certain way. Yeah, beyond Trump, it was like a Brexit thing too, right? It was a Brexit yeah, thing yeah, too. Was, there was yeah. like all this kind of stuff going on in Europe uh, and everywhere else. Um, all the polls were wildly off and everything. And, you know, all the political predictions of things that seemed like they should happen didn't actually materialise. This time, everyone went into it thinking, okay, Democrats are probably going to take the House. Republicans are going to probably hold the Senate. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be massive either way. And that, yeah. by and large, that was true. Yeah. Um, and so the guys, the Cruz was always saying, supposed to win. Cruz yeah, was so going to win. not yeah. winning. That's just a that's a that's a celebrity thing. That isn't an actual exactly. sign of things. Yeah, and even in Florida, you know, where um, uh, what's his face was uh, was expected to win the Democrat, um, it was still going to oh, be a huge, it was still going to be a huge fight. You yeah. know, this is the thing, and you know, it, could it was always a fifty-fifty fight. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe edging just because of the sheer amount of money that Democrats have pumped into, that, and because of the relative size of the populations and distribution in uh, Miami Dade and yeah. and everywhere else. But um, yeah, I think uh, that was an interesting kind of maybe bellwether for the f- next few years in politics. That it is a return to the status quo, normality, and this kind of weird populism. We're going to still have an idiot in the presidency. It's going to still say things that are going to set everybody off. Well, but he hopefully, is. The- and like you know, if you go on his Twitter account and click on the media tab, it's a very scary place. Yeah. There. And it's like it's just a fascist. Uh, memorial essentially yeah. is pictures of the president who by the way has not announced that he's running for re-election at rallies which mm-hmm. why are you holding these if you're not running for election um, it's weird mock-up film posters of Game of Thrones where he says sanctions are coming it's actually quite funny if it wasn't so terrifying <laughs> um, which Chinese media picked up on and it's like videos of, of court testimonies of immigrants who came and killed people mm-hmm. and like this is just all 1933 like yeah. you know kind of Reichstag burning kind of type thing classic fascism um, why it's not scaring more people today? And his like press conference there was weird as well. If you I don't know if you I watched don't that, watch stuff. I just um, can't. you know, where he said he was going to assume a warlike footing. What Democrats need to not do is immediately launch a series of investigations into yeah. Trump. They need to play it cool. Um, let the process work. Let the process work. I mean, yeah. by all means, if you want to have an internal committee shadowing the Mueller committee, like because they can obtain documents that maybe he can't because right. they have certain powers and uh, whatever, then fine. But. You know, don't we don't need immediate impeachment proceedings launched by the liberal wing? Um, and what Democrats definitely need to do, and I think what this has highlighted for them, is get a sense of realism about their um, voting base, which doesn't tend to come out and vote very much. And I think that's been seen again. Yeah. Um, and also tone down their expectations, full stop, because you know all this talk about blue wave doesn't help anyone. Um, and finally, you need to have some kind of unity of purpose. Like you cannot have all these different people prepping up for presidential elections who are so radically different on the slate. Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. You know, yeah. I mean, like, these all represent very different wings of the party and it will tear the party apart in the primaries if it yeah. doesn't happen. So, That's least, what uh, happened to the Republican Party. We had a great bunch of people running in the last one, 2016. And yeah, well, they called it one of the strongest so many people right, in there and so, Trump yeah. was just well, allowed Trump them to eat in. each other alive. Well, Trump played it very clever. Like, you know, well, people don't give him enough credit I think actually or at least a strategist enough credit for allowing them to pick at each other and then yeah. stepping into the void um, Trump interesting question actually now he's uh, you know I think it was CNN was saying if you found the media annoying wait until he meets the House of Representatives you know the power to subpoena documents sure. and, and uh, okay yeah the Senate has the last say but the House is a very formidable opponent yeah Good checks and balance. Good checks and balance, but he's never really had this on him. So he's been president for two years now, and he and then you know Republicans have been dominant. They control yeah. the House, they control the Senate, they control the White House. Yep. Um, they now control the Supreme control Court the to a large extent. Yep. Um, this is the first time he's going to have any real opposition apart from the media, which can only do so much to him. What do you think he's going to react? I mean, is this something maybe where he comes up against this level of opposition where he can't get his stuff put through now? Oh, it's that funny this that he, today he didn't he like congratulate. Um, 
what's her name out in uh, California? Uh, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. I saw and, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like that was weird. Well, she's uh, facing a fight to become speaker again, isn't she? Yeah. Like, you know, eighty was it like sixty or seventy Democrats have said they won't vote for her. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think that let's. I think that, like I said, if they're smart, they're just going to let Mueller continue to do his thing. Yeah. They don't force anything. Um, you know, day one, you know, January twentieth, just be like, oh, no, we're gonna just yeah. let's 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 start the proceedings now. You're basically going to give Trump four more years after that. Like I said, I think the key turning point in the Mueller thing will be if Trump announces he's running for re-election or not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think. He's going to become very frustrated with this process quickly, and Trump doesn't like this, so he might decide to walk away while he can still say, look, we did all this stuff, I was the winner. Yep. So, you know. Yep, he, he got, uh, like I said, won the Senate, you know, increased in the Senate, so he can walk away with that victory in this midterm election. Yeah. Supreme Court appointees. Yep. Uh, Supreme Court tax, appointees. you know, reform, health care, abolition. Yep. Whatever extent. you think of those things as being good yeah. or bad, he's he can certainly, if he wanted to, exactly. but I think that that's, I think a lot of people are hoping that. I don't know. Well, no, it'll just, be interesting uh, to see. No, just watch the migrant caravan disappear from the news cycle as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's it. We're done with the politics. We'll yes. be back next week with uh, normal conversation again. Um, I think next week we might have a guest. Uh, it's, hasn't, we haven't finalized that, but might. Um, but otherwise, we do have a couple more lined up in the weeks to come. Um, so, yeah, if uh, you have any thoughts on any things that we talked about, feel free to shoot us an email. Otherwise, uh, we will catch you all next week. All right, cheers.